0: You have your Bibles. If you didn't bring your Bible, there should be one right in front of you in the back of that pew. You're going to need your Bibles open as we look at the particular words of God's inspired text. So I want to encourage all of us to have a Bible, whether it's your phone, iPad, tablet, Bible. You know, remember those ancient paper things? If you could open it up to Nehemiah chapter 2. By the way, if you open up your Bible right in the halfway mark and go left, you're going to find Nehemiah. It can be a tricky book to find. Today's May 20th, and there's been a lot of notable things that have happened on May 20th. Uh, In 1310, shoes were made for the first time that could fit either your left or your right feet. Before that, they had shoes that could fit either feet. In 1830, the fountain pen was patented. In 1900, the second modern Olympics that took place in Paris lasted five months. May 20th, that was what happened in 1900. 1916, this is incredible. On May 20th, in Codell, Kansas, a tornado struck that town. The following year, May, May 20th, another tornado struck that town. And the following year, on May 20th, a tornado struck that town. By that point, you've got to be wor- worrying when May 20th is about to come if you're in Codell, Kansas. Probably the most historically significant thing that's ever happened on May 20th in human history was when Peter Chris, the drummer for the rock band KISS, quit. <laughs> that was That was shocking. Some of us are scarred. (laughs) Things can happen on a particular day that have far-reaching implications and consequences. And what we're going to see today in Nehemiah's life, on this particular day, something incredible is about to happen, and it's a day that he will never forget. Now, let me take you backward just a little bit before we go forward. Here's Nehemiah. He's in Persia. He's in exile. He's serving the Persian king, Artaxerxes, and a group of men come from Judah back home 800 miles to the west and south, four months of a walking distance, and they report to Nehemiah because he asked, how are things going at home? They said, the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem and the city, they're in great trouble and shame. The city is demolished, the walls are down, the tabernacle is working, people are coming to worship, but every step you take towards the temple only reminds you of the ruin all around you. They're in great trouble and shame. And it broke Nehemiah's heart. Now immediately, think of somebody in your life whose life is a mess. Does it break your heart? Do you grieve for them? It may be on a different level. Some may weep. Some may just feel terrible. Does it break your heart? Do you grieve for them? Well, for Nehemiah, it did. And it moved Nehemiah to say, I need to do something about this. Lord, what is it you want me to do? And so here's what Nehemiah did. He begins to go to, to God in prayer and fasting. And we looked last week, the slides behind me, if you forget these five parts of Nehemiah's prayer. First, he elevated God. God is Yahweh. He's the faithful covenant-keeping God and he's Elohim. He is sovereign sustainer, ruler over all. And he elevates God to his proper place and then he invites God's attention. God, look at me, pay attention to me. I'm so passionate For the people of Jerusalem that I'm asking that you give me your ears and you give me your eyes. But remember, when God swings his holy gaze upon your life and he gives you his attention, then what's going to be revealed are things in your life that are displeasing to him. And it moves Nehemiah to see the sins in his own life, to see the sins in his people's lives. And he begins to confess. And you remember last week we saw Confession is a double layer cake. Right, One layer is acknowledging and agreeing with what God's saying. The first thing you do in confession, friends, when God shows you your sin, you've got to agree with him. God, I see it. I acknowledge it's in there. It's displeasing to you. And then the second layer of that cake is, what am I going to do with it? Well, you've got to cast it. That's what confession means. Throw it upon God. Give it to his mercy. Let God plunge it beneath his blood. And forgive us and bring us clean. And then after you confess, listen, if you can see your sin, but you can't affirm God's grace, you're in a boatload of problem. That will drive you to despair, brother and sister. When you see your sin, you've got to be able to affirm God's grace because his grace and his mercy is always greater than your sin. Always greater than my sin. And so you reaffirm, God, I know you love me. I know I'm your child. I know you're my God. I know you'll forgive these. I know your mercy is like a racehorse waiting for the gate to drop. It wants to forgive and cleanse and restore. After those four, then Nehemiah says, but Lord, I have a petition. I have something to ask. Would you do this for me? And what he's praying is, will you, will you work to restore your people? Will you work to repair your city? And God is about to answer that prayer, and this is the day that he is going to do it. We're going to see that today, but here's what we're going to see. We're going to see four marks of a servant leader. If God's going to use you to rebuild somebody's life, If God's going to use you to restore a ruined wall around somebody's life, then you've got to know these four heart qualities because they're present in Nehemiah. They've got to be present in us as well. And here's the first mark of a servant leader. Servant leaders learn how to wait. God's servants wait. You see, before Nehemiah learned how to lead, he learned how to serve. He was a cupbearer. We're going to look at that a little bit more deeply. But he learned how to serve before he learned how to lead. Now, I I want to bring you something that I think is really interesting. Because in the world, there's a ladder. You know it. You might be on it. And that ladder is called the corporate ladder. And that ladder has rungs on it. And that ladder only goes one way. It goes up. That's the corporate ladder. How do I get the promotion? How do I get the better job? How do I get more authority? How do I get more money? How do I get better perks? The ladder goes one way. God has a ladder too. Except his ladder goes the other direction. If you're going to be used by God to lead in his kingdom, then God's ladder goes down. His ladder descends. On his ladder, you go rung by rung towards the bottom. Well, I don't know if I believe that, Tim. Well, here's what Jesus says. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You want to be a leader in God's kingdom, you're going to have to go down. And this is the model of Jesus Christ. You know Philippians chapter 2, Christ Jesus though he was in the form of God. Friends, listen, he's at the top of the ladder. There, there's not another rung above that one. He is God. He's in the form of God, but he did not account, count equality with God a thing to be held on He didn't hold on to that rung and unwilling to let go, but he made himself nothing. Here we go. Downhill, taking the form of a servant. You want to be a leader in God's kingdom, a restorer of lives, a repairer of streets, then you've got to see that before he'll use you as a leader, he'll train you as a servant. And without exception, friends, servant training is God's work and in helping us to learn to wait. There's no exceptions to this. If God is training you to be a leader, he's going to train you first to be a servant and And a central part of God's servant training is training us to learn to wait on God. Now, here's what Nehemiah prayed. Look in your chapter 1, verse 11. Here's what he prayed. God, give success to your servant. Look what he says, today. Give success to your servant today. Now, this is in the month of Kislev. The month of Kislev in the Hebrew calendar is mid-November to mid-December. And then we turn the page and you get to chapter 2 and we read in verse 1 in the month of Nisan. In the month of Nisan, Nisan is four months later. This is why I like the Living Bible's translation here because here's what the the Living Bible says. One day in April, four months later. Four months later. Nehemiah has been praying, let your servant have success today. Four months, he would get up every morning, he would pray that today would be the day he would go to bed that night saying, God, may tomorrow be the day, his faith constantly being affirmed, his faith constantly be remembering that God has a timetable that is not ours. Four months how, do you, how well do you do, friends, in waiting? I mean, honestly. Now think through that a little bit. You don't come to church to put your minds in neutral. Don't do that. That's, that's not beneficial at all. So interact with me. Think of something that you have to wait for right now. What are you waiting for right now? For most of us, it's difficult. I mean, we do have microwaves. Can anybody my age... And younger, remember not having a microwave. I remember not having a microwave, and I remember getting one, and my dad saying, we're all going to die of cancer. (laughs) We have microwaves, we have fast food, we've got blazing Wi-Fi. Honestly, listen, you're all a bunch of internet geeks like me. Is anybody's Wi-Fi fast enough? It's not. And we've got Amazon two-day shipping. You ever order something and you're going to learn it's going to be seven 10 to ten days before you get it. It Doesn't it just drive you crazy? You, you'll spend that $78, I think it is, for Prime membership a year because it'll promise you two-day shipping. I mean, we don't like to wait. We go to Disney and we get Fast Passes. I mean, we just don't like lines. We don't wait well But to be a servant leader, you've got to learn to wait on God. His timetable is not ours. Maybe you're here this morning as a single person. And you've got so much love in your heart. And Lord, when will you bring me somebody to love? When will you bring me somebody that can love me? I so want to be in a relationship. And it doesn't seem like you're bringing anybody my way. Waiting is hard. Maybe you had a biopsy done this last week. and You don't get those results for 7 to 10 days. And it spans a weekend. So it's 9 to 12 days. And all the while, your mind is doing what mine did a year ago when I had to get CAT scans. Something was going on in my body. They didn't know what was going on. And I'm thinking all the way to the end, how do I leave letters to my children? How will I do the best I can to help Denise be prepared for this? I mean, your mind just goes to the utter limits when you've got to wait. It's difficult. Or maybe you have a child that has walked away from the Lord and you pray every single day for that daughter, every single day for that son. And yet nothing seems to be happening in their hearts and you're really waiting and you're wondering, Lord, will they ever come back? Waiting is hard. I think, I think, at least two reasons why it's so difficult. And see if your heart doesn't agree with this. Waiting is reminds us of our helplessness you're not on the throne when you're waiting i'm not in control when i have to wait it's a reminder that i'm not god that i can't control my life that i'm utterly helpless and it reminds me that i i'm utterly dependent on god i don't really always like that isn't that terrible to hear that from your lead pastor Pretty sure I have a lot of company. When waiting goes week after week, month after month, and sometimes horribly year after year, it begins to deflate your faith and your confidence in God. Yet God knows what He's doing. He's shaping, He's teaching, and He's suspending our timetable until we'll learn to trust His. Wait for the Lord, the psalmist says. Be strong and let your heart take courage. That's not always what happens when we wait. A lot of times, the faith is leaking out of our hearts. God says, let your heart take courage because you're waiting for the Lord. Indeed, none who wait For you, God, shall be put to shame, Psalm 25. Listen, if you're waiting, if you're in the waiting room right now, you've got to have your faith restored. You won't be put to shame. God will move when God wants to, and when he moves, it's going to be satisfying. Ecclesiastes says, That there is a time to break down and there is a time to build up. So you've got somebody in your life, you see the ruin in their life, you see the mess that they've made of their lives, and your heart begins to break, your heart begins to grieve, yet you know you can't shoot first and aim later. That's almost always a mess. So you begin to pray, God, what do you want me to do in the life of my friend, what do you want me to do to help repair their walls? And God doesn't answer day after day. But your heart's still breaking week after week. Waiting is difficult. It suspends our timetable. And it gets us to reorient on God's timetable. Now, Nehemiah was a waiter. Now, go back to verse 11 again, if you would, one more time. In chapter 1, here's what he tells us. Listen, chapter 1 through 7, chapters 1 through 7, his diary these are diary entries. And he gets to the end of chapter one, and then he finally, like a P.S., says, Oh, yeah, I'm the cupbearer to the king. Well, what's a cupbearer to the king? Most of us know the cupbearer tastes the wine, making sure it's not poisoned. Well, let's, let's go a little further into the cupbearer's life, because there's a whole lot more in the life of a cupbearer than that. His job was to wait. His job was to stand to the side, unnoticed, unobserved, and to wait for the signal of the king, to wait for the nod of the king, and as soon as it came, to spring into action. So number one, Nehemiah was someone used to waiting on somebody who's in A superior position to him. But it goes on. If you go back and study Persia's history, it's not going to take you long to discover they were bloody, murderous kings. One wrong look, you're dead. And so it's not surprising that there's a lot of assassination attempts on the Persian kings. So of course they would try to poison the wine. So Nehemiah is the shield bearer. His job was to take a little of the wine, pour it into a glass, drink the the wine, and if he didn't fall over dead, then the king would get his wine. Now there's more to that than that. That part I think we all pretty much knew. It goes beyond that. Nehemiah's job was to know his king so well that he would know what type of wine the king would want, when he would want his wine, and what, what, what season the wine should be he he learned his king so well that is that he could serve his king that well. But even more than that, a cupbearer would stand in the presence of the king all the time. So he would become a confidant. He would be act, he would have access to incredibly secret private information and the king would begin to turn to him. He was a king's counselor. Listen, don't think drinking wine is all the cupbearer does. He's the king's counselor. In fact, his position and authority goes like this. King of Persia, Prince of Persia, cupbearer. He's third in authority in the mightiest nation on the planet. This is a man who knows how to wield authority. This is a man that knows how to serve and wait. This is a man that knows how to hold a trust that someone has put in him. And month after month goes by, And this ladder of success, listen, Nehemiah is on the third rung. Only the prince and the king are above him. He's not going to get higher than this. And yet he says, Lord, what will you do for me? And a plan is forming. I want to go back to Jerusalem. I'm going to go down the ladder. I'm going to descend the ladder because I want to do something for your people. Friends, God's surgery... Now, please listen to this, and if you can write it down, do or at least put it into your brain so it's not going to leave. God's surgery takes place more often in the waiting room than in the operation room. If you want to know what God's doing in your life, then watch what your heart does when you're forced to wait. Because He's squeezing your life. He's squeezing your heart in the waiting room and he's doing surgery. And what's coming out of you, all of that irritation, all of that frustration, all of that impatience, all that anger, all that impetulence, all of that's coming out so you can begin to see and begin double layer caking it right to God, acknowledging it and throwing it and plunging it beneath his blood. God, Nehemiah is praying, I want you to act now. Give success to your servant today. And God's saying, I know you do week after week and month after month, but trust me and wait, I'm doing a work in your heart. You're not ready yet. Listen, if we're ready, God would answer it. The fact that God hasn't answered your prayer says you're not ready, and the people that you're rebuilding is not, are not ready The first thing you need to know in Nehemiah, the mark of a servant leader, is that he knew how to wait. The second thing is that God's servants trust. God's servants trust. You know, it's not usually very difficult if you've got eyes to see, if you look closely enough, to look beyond the happy face that people put on to their crushed and broken heart. How many of you don't, you don't, rhetorical, you don't need to raise your hand. How many of you had somebody ask you or you asked somebody, how are you doing? And quite honestly, you really weren't that concerned with the answer. That's happened already today for a lot of us. And they, people are trained to smile. When's the last time you asked on a Sunday morning, how are you doing? And they said, oh, you know what? I about jumped off a bridge this week. My life fell apart. I don't know how I'm going to go on living. I don't think I can do it. Well, you might argue that's not even appropriate in the context of a Sunday morning coming to worship, maybe, but I'm telling you that if it's not too difficult to be able to hear somebody tell you, I'm doing well, and to look a little more closely and see what's really going on in their heart. It comes through their face. This is what Proverbs says, a glad heart makes a cheerful face But by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. You can see beyond the face to the heart. There's a lot of times that I will see many of you on a Sunday morning and I'll say, how are you doing? And there's a little glimmer in your eyes when you tell me I'm doing well. And I'll say, really? Are you really doing well? And all of a sudden, lots of times, tears just start to flow. Our faces betray our hearts. You're going to see this in action in Nehemiah's life. It's the month Nisan. It's in April. And by the way, that's the Hebrew month, the Persian calendar. It's the beginning of the year. This is the new year. This is the new year celebration. This is likely either the day or the week or the month where all the Persians celebrating their great success as a kingdom. It's a time of great joy and a time of great hope. In fact, the Greek historian Herodotus, who lived during this period of time, he wrote this about the the Persian new year celebration. He said this, no one who asked A boon that day at the king's board should be denied his request. In other words, if you can gain access to the king during the New Year celebration, whatever you're going to ask him, he's going to give. That's part of the custom of the, of the Persian New Year. And if this day, which I think it was, if it's during the happiness of the New Year celebration when everybody's celebrating and there is no sadness, All of a sudden, the grief in Nehemiah's heart becomes a glaring torch for King Artaxerxes. Verse 1, Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. What a wise king. Now look what Nehemiah wrote in his journal, his diary. Then I was very much afraid. Can I translate that literally to you? It says, a terrible fear overcame me when the, queen, when the king noticed my sad face. Listen, you know why? You know why he was afraid? Go back to Ezra chapter 4 and you'll understand because Ezra served a Persian king, or, or Esther rather, served a Persian king. And he and it says, Mordecai went up to the entrance of the king's gate. This is Esther chapter 4. Went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. What it's saying is it was illegal to bring sadness, grief, melancholy, depression into the presence of a king. You would be killed for that. Nehemiah, why is your face so sad? And all of a sudden, an arrow of fear goes through his heart. I can die this day. King's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. So Nehemiah immediately responds in verse 3 I said to the king, Let the king live forever. This is what cupbearers say to their kings. Because guess what? If somebody slips poison into the drink and it gets by you and kills the king, guess who's next to be killed? You want the king to live a very long life. Let the king live forever. It is royal courtroom standard reply. But look what he says. He explains his sadness... As centering on the ruin of the city where his ancestors were buried. Here's what he says Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? And if you're like me, I'm going, what is he talking about a cemetery for? Listen, I'm from DeRider, New York, a little farm town in central New York. And we have a cemetery, we have no traffic lights. We have a cemetery. I used to be in it every Memorial Day weekend because I was the snare drummer in the marching band and we always did our Memorial Day parade right into the cemetery where they played the taps. So I'm pretty well acquainted with the seminary in DeRoyter, New York, but I'm pretty sure not once has my heart ever grieved for the cemetery. Now, a little bit, I guess, because my brother, John, Whenever a tree drops in the cemetery, they call my brother John. He cuts it up and carts it out, and then I have to go split it. And it's always old-growth trees at about 60 inches in diameter. So I guess I grieve over the cemetery because I hate splitting that kind of wood. And my brother also, his job is when somebody dies, he takes his backhoe, rides it through town, digs the grave, they bury the person. That's what my brother does back home. But now, once has my heart broken over Derider's Cemetery. So why is Nehemiah's heart going in this direction that the place of my father's graves lies in ruin? And you might be thinking, why is he talking about the graves? (coughs) Nehemiah, friends, is wise. And he knows something that most of us don't. And that Persians revered their ancestors, their graves were sacred places of worship. Dead people to Persia were meant to be elevated, were meant to be revered. These places were places you would go, they would decorate graves, they would honor their dead. He doesn't mention Jerusalem by name. Look at your text. There's no way he's going to mention Jerusalem. That's a rebellious city of seditious Jews. He won't mention Jerusalem. He, he Instead, he plays on the heartstrings of Artaxerxes. And all of a sudden, you might be thinking that's manipulation. There's a lot of times it occurs in the Bible from wise, shrewd people. And the king responds in verse 4, the king said to me, what are you requesting? Here's the situation, king. What are you requesting, Nehemiah? And look what Nehemiah does. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Haven't you done that? You ever been in a near accident where time seems to slow down? And in the midst of it, somehow, you can throw up a prayer to God. God, help me. You ever gotten terrible news and you've got to react to it quickly? You don't have a choice. God, help me. While you're still in movement, you don't have time to get to your prayer closet. You don't have time to get to your knees. But do you have time to throw to God? God, help me. That's what Nehemiah does. And it's okay to do. But I wonder what he was praying I mean, maybe he was asking God to steady his frenetically beating heart. Maybe he was praising God because he could see this is the day I've been praying for months. And now the king's saying, what is it you want me to do? The day of my success, God, you've brought it. Maybe he's appealing to God to bless his request And to direct the king, he knows, Proverbs 21, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He knows these things. Nehemiah knows what Hudson Taylor will one day write, that it is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. That's an incredible statement. What robust faith in this. You can move your boss through prayer, through God by prayer alone. You can move your unsaved spouse through God by prayer alone. We have a family in our church whose son was dating a woman that they knew this is not the wife that God wants for him. It was disaster in the making. And they began to pray day after day, assaulting the throne of mercy with their prayers, saying, God, remove her from his life, protect our son. Listen, if parents don't know through discernment who you ought to marry, then who does? It is their job from God to train up your child in righteousness. and That doesn't end at 18. And so they pray day after day after day until finally their son calls them up and says, Mom, we broke up. And now their prayers turn to praise. And the woman that he has married since is a partner for him in full-time ministry in which the other woman never would have been able to do. Pray and pray and pray God's the one that can move people. In the 1950s, an article appeared in a Russian newspaper. It says this, If you meet with difficulties in your work or suddenly doubt your abilities, think of him, Stalin. And you will find the confidence you need. And if you feel tired in an hour when you should not, think of him, of Stalin, And your work will go well. And if you're seeking a correct decision, think of him, of Stalin, Joseph Stalin, and you will find that decision. That's communist version, atheistic communism's version of prayer. It's what we ought to do in these flare prayers. It's what we ought to do when we're on our knees and in our, in our prayer closet. Lord, I don't know what to do. I'm just praying that you will clear the fog, give me a plan, give me direction, and bring me my day of success. And finally, that day comes. And we learn the, fir- the third mark, not only waiting and not only trusting God's servant's plan. You know, there's a reason that Nehemiah wrote a side note in his diary. You look at your text and you'll see it. It's puzzling. It's bizarre. It seems out of place. Look what it says. The queen sitting beside him. Well, if you believe what I believe, and I hope you do, that every single word in the Word of God is inspired by God Himself. He breathed it out. He wanted this phrase into the text. Then we've got to, we've got to do justice with it. We've got to chew on it. We've got to struggle with it. Why does Nehemiah write the Queen sitting beside me? Or beside Him, the King? Well, I don't think I'm going to give you the full answer, but here's part of it. You ready? It's indicating that this is now a intimate, an intimate and intimate setting. The queen doesn't preside over courtroom affairs. If the queen is next to her husband, then it's an intimate setting. Likely the queen, the king, and Nehemiah serving them and waiting on them. It's an opportunity now where the king's hearts are down, his, his his defenses and his walls are down. He can hear. It's more of intimacy that's in the room at that moment. And we know from historical records that King Artaxerxes, this king, was incredibly influenced by women. That's all through the history of this Persian king. And all of a sudden it begins to move us to think, and let me speak to you ladies, wives especially. You do know, right? You do know the power that you have when you wield it wisely. I mean, think of Queen Esther. Also married to a Persian king who, through her wisdom, saves the entire Jewish people from extinction. Think of Abigail, the wife of that foolish man Nabal, who pleads with David, who's on his way to kill her husband, pleads with David, prostrates herself before him, and saves her husband's life. Ladies, when your husband faces great decisions and stress is all around him, do you use your influence wisely? Unlike Job's wife, who counseled him to curse God and just die. They're in a private setting. The queen is there, and whatever influence she's exerting, listen, it's likely filling her husband's heart with grace and favor. And ladies, there's your power in your husband. You have the power to fill your husband's heart with grace and favor when you wield your influence wisely. In verse 4, we're still faced. Nehemiah is still talking to the most powerful man on the planet. Listen, you know you're dealing with somebody that's used to authority, someone with a lot of power, when even their questions are in the form of statements. Look at verse 4. Then the king said to me, not asked me, the king said to me, what are you requesting? This is a man of power. And how devastating would it have been if Nehemiah answered his king's statement slash question with this, You know, I don't really know, Artie. I haven't really made a plan. But I've got a lot of faith and I've been praying for four months and I'm sure God's going to do something. Listen, if that was Nehemiah's response, I guarantee you he never would have had another opportunity with King Artaxerxes. Waiting on God is not about wasting time any more than making good plans is a lack of faith. It's not the evil creeping influence of godless corporate practices to make plans. Servants of God plan. They have goals. They know their mission. They're single-minded for it. it. Reminds me of 1958 World Series. You've got two men who are famous. You've got Yogi Berra. He's catching. And you've got Hank Aaron, the power hitter. And Yogi, the catcher for the Yankees, he's always talking. You know the stories. He's always chattering behind the plate. He's always trying to motivate his teammates, and he's always trying to distract the batter. You got Hank Aaron, who is a power hitter, and he comes up to the plate, and Barrett says to him, Henry, you're holding the bat wrong. You, you got, you're got you supposed to hold it so that you can read the label, or you're going to break your bat. Aaron didn't say a word to him. And the next pitch that came over the plate, he hit it for a home run into the left field bleachers. He rounds the bases, first, second, third. He's on his way to home, and he jumps onto home base and stops. This is a true story. And looked right at Yogi Berra, and he says these words. Get on the internet. You can confirm it. He says, I came up here to hit, not read. He knew his mission. He knew the plan. He had a goal and he was single-minded in his pursuit. That's why he was successful. Successful people in God's kingdom plan. Faith doesn't eclipse the need to make plans. And the same with Nehemiah, he was waiting for God for four months. And during that four months, Nehemiah is creating. The fog is dissipating. He's seeing it clearer every day. And when the king finally asked, when God finally gave him the day of success, Nehemiah had a plan ready to present. And he gave it to the king. How long will you be gone? Verse 6. And when will you return? These are specific questions. Tell me how long, Nehemiah, that I'm going to have to lose you. You're my shield bearer. I finally created a trust for you. I'm not letting you leave lightly. When are you coming back? And Nehemiah, it says in his journal, it pleased the king to send me, circle when, underline the word when, when I had given him a time. The king was pleased when he saw the specific plan that Nehemiah had created. Listen, if you got all these heart desires, you got all these ambitions, you got all these dreams, and you don't have a plan that God has birthed in your heart, how to rebuild and restore people's lives, you're not going to gain the audience. Then we get to the riskiest part of the plan. Here's what he says, verse five. If it pleases the king, Nehemiah says, give me letters. In other words, I've got to pass through a lot of regions. I've got to pass through a lot of your, your, your empire countries. And there's governors in there and they don't let people pass very easily. And I'm going to not, I don't want to pay the tariffs and the taxes. I need letters to gain me passage. And then, king, it's all the forests are yours in Persia. They're the royal forests. And I can't just cut a tree down without having your permission. So give me a letter for Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so that I could get wood. Now, here's the interesting thing. Look at your text in verse 8. He needed wood, he says to the king, for three things. First, the gates of the fortress of the temple. Secondly, for the wall of the city. And third, for the house that I shall occupy. Did you notice the middle one? The other two aren't threatening. The gates to the fortress of the temple, that's a worship place where they could, they could control the traffic so nobody unclean could come in and be defiled. And the, the house that the governor, that Nehemiah, who will be governor, the house, that's not very threatening. It's the middle one, the wall of the city. Because, friends, you've got to know walls aren't decorative afterthoughts of a city engineer. They are only made for one purpose. It's to defend and to fortify against others outside. And King Artaxerxes likely is thinking, why do you need a wall? Jerusalem, I own them. Who are you guarding against? That was the riskiest part of the plan. But Nehemiah wrote, The king granted me what I asked. You know, I always ask you to do this. It is so terribly difficult to do, and I understand that. It's really cool reading these things. I mean, it's exciting. Nehemiah is one of the most exciting books in the Bible. But it's not going to do anything in your heart if you can't get into Nehemiah's shoes. What would be going through your heart? You've been praying four, day, four months with a broken heart asking God to give you today success. And every night you go to bed and that wasn't the day. Maybe it'll be tomorrow. Four months passes and all of a sudden God just opens wide a door of opportunity so fast all you've got time to do is throw up a prayer to God. And the next thing you know, the king is granting what I asked. What would you be thinking in your own mind? Would you leave the presence of the king with a sense of incredible personal victory? Thinking like this, I knocked his Persian socks off. See what I'm capable of. He finally gets it. That would be a disaster of the highest order if Nehemiah left the presence of the king thinking those thoughts because God's servants finally testify. Look what he wrote. For the good hand of my God. Was upon me. This is a brilliant man. You're not going to find too many people in the Word of God that are a better leader than Nehemiah, a better tactician, a better planner, and a better, a more robust faith than Nehemiah. But he refused to take the credit. He wrote, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And what we're learning, fellow wall builders, what we're learning, servant leaders, is this. Anything, anything that succeeds in our lives is ultimately owed to the grace of God. Listen, if you've been promoted, guard your heart well, because that was the favor of God and on your life. If you've been successful in your industry, if you're a successful homemaker, and you're a successful parent whose children are walking with the Lord, guard your heart from pride because it had everything to do with God's grace. The moment we think we deserve the credit, we begin to glorify ourselves, we're robbing God and we're robbing from his glory. God doesn't need us. He has never needed any human being to do any work he has ever done. He chooses to use us in his plans. It's his grace and it's his mercy that he would include us in his plans. And, friends, the utmost stark reality is this if he withdrew his sustaining grace for even a moment, we would fail. We would fail. And last Sunday, I was so reminded of this. Even while I was preaching this service, the second service. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, preachers think when they preach. I mean, some of you don't even think that preachers can think. I understand that. But even while we're preaching, we're thinking. And I remember preaching the second service last Sunday, and this is horrible to even share, but I remember. Th- Looking at you as you're looking at me and you're quiet, you can hear a pin drop, nobody's moving and all of a sudden this thought went through my mind, wow, I'm preaching really well. I'm not exaggerating this, all Sunday afternoon, all of Monday, every time I remembered that thought, I literally physically shuddered because I know where that thought comes from. That comes from my glory-robbing, glory-hogging flesh. And I forgot for a moment that not one sermon ever preached in the flesh of a man ever changed anybody. It is the Spirit of God alone that transforms. Listen, you go to a preacher and they've got so many good stories and anecdotes and you walk out of there and your heart is soaring and the Spirit of God was not moving, I can guarantee you any transformation in your life that happens is going to be short and quickly reversed. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The credit goes to God because it's God doing the work. God is responsible. So God's servants testify. You know, the goal as I end in studying the book of Nehemiah, listen, I'm telling you, I've already said it, Nehemiah is unbelievable. There's not many men like him. Not even in the scriptures. But the goal of studying this book is not to end with the wonder at the man. It's to go through the man, Nehemiah, and end with the preeminence and the glory of God. Because when God says it's time to build, it gets done. Is he preparing you, friends, to be a wall-building leader? Well, if he is, mark my words, see it in Nehemiah, he's going to teach you to wait. And you're not going to do it well, and neither do I. And he's going to teach you to trust him during that waiting room. That's where he does the surgery, on your hearts. And he will help you. Dissipate the fog so that you can see his plan and when it comes time for the day of success, you will be able to testify of God's good hand on your life. Those are the marks of a servant leader that God uses to rebuild and restore lives. Lord, thank you for what we're learning. God, we have just begun and I think we're going to learn so much. I pray that you would encourage us, teach us how to wait. And in that waiting room, teach us how to trust. And Lord, I pray that we would crystallize plans, that we would not think that blind faith makes no plans. It's filled with strategy. It's filled with plans and strategy because through, through prayer, you're, you're getting rid of the fog and you're helping us to see what it is you want us to do. And Lord, help us to always testify of your good hand and let us not take any of the credit. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.